turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, chapter 4. Tis the season for a Christmas sermon series, one that we'll start today entitled, God in Flesh. God in Flesh. And over the next three Sundays, Lord willing, we'll look at different applications for us as Christians of this important doctrine and what bearing it has on our lives as we look forward to celebrating Christ, the newborn king, and his entrance into the world, his birth. Now, you'll notice in your sermon outline there is a plethora of not only 50-cent words, but of scripture references. If I counted right, I think there's 22, all of which I hope and pray are helpful both during our time today. And if you were to choose to spend some more time studying these things in the days to come during the Advent season, have at it. Today's sermon title is The Arrival of of God in flesh. And for that, we'll look not to the more popular narrative today uh, that tells us of Christ's conception and birth, his uh, entrance into the world. We won't look at that today, but we will look at the book of Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, and I will read uh, two verses for now. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you uh, rejoicing in the many, many means of grace that you've blessed us with, Lord. We are so thankful to have your word, to be able to hear from you, uh, not only this morning, but any time we seek to open up the word of God, we can hear and read what you have for us to know for life and godliness. So we're so thankful for that. Lord, we're thankful for the gospel, Lord, that we know because we've heard your word, that we know faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So thank you for opening our eyes and our ears, Lord, to your word and to changing our hearts and minds to love and embrace you. And we pray, Lord, uh, that in addition to that grace, that you would add grace even now, Lord, as we seek to uh, worship you through the hearing of your word, through the preaching of your word. Lord, would you give us understanding, Lord? Would you change our hearts and our minds as a result of your truth for your name's sake? We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. The text we are looking at today is just two verses that come out of a larger flow of thought that Paul was penning. Take a look at verse 1 of that chapter, chapter 4, and you'll see what is, in my humble opinion, one of the more awkward chapter breaks we have in our Bibles today. It's literally mid-thought and almost useless without the final words of chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. It's like, what does that mean? Does that ever happen to you? Do you ever sit and you're talking with someone and they uh, start to talk to you? They've been thinking about something for seven minutes and they just engage you right then and there. Happens in our home sometimes. Sometimes Sarah will do that and she'll be sitting down thinking about something and she'll say, here's what I'm saying. And it's like, you're saying what? I don't, I don't know. You got to back that truck up. You got to go to the tape and tell me, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't know what that means because I've not been tarrying with you. Has that ever happened? I see you laughing. Raise your hands if that has happened to you. You've been either the giver or the receiver of such awesome communication. Well, that's what we have right here uh, in our text today. Um, Galatians, so what I want to do is I want to back up a little uh, since we're in Galatians chapter 4, really for one week, and just give you a really fast, like really fast, fly-by-night overview of Galatians up until this point so you can understand what Paul is talking about. For that, I'll ask you to very quickly switch back to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians is similar to another one of Paul's letters that we spent a significant amount of time in this year, the book of Romans. 
It's similar in that a central theme to the book is justification by faith alone. In fact, if you look at Galatians 1 and verse 6, you'll see Paul starts out by telling his readers how surprised he is that they've been led astray so easily to a different gospel, one that is not justification by grace through faith. Look at verse 6. I am astonished, Paul says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, different from the one by which they were saved, the gospel of justification by faith alone. One chapter later, Galatians chapter 2, in verse 11, Paul tells us that he had to correct the apostle Peter to his face, and here's why. Peter would eat with Gentiles just fine, just fine. It didn't matter that they were Gentile Christians. He would eat with Gentiles just fine until people came along who were of a Jewish background. And then we're told that he would draw away because they were, these, these people were Jewish and the Gentiles that he was eating with, which he was fine with, he didn't want the Jewish people seeing him eat with them because he feared what they would think. So even though he would, autom- he would normally hang out with them, have fellowship with them, when people came who were of a Jewish background, he would separate himself and not let the Gentiles play in any of the reindeer games. And in verse 12 of chapter 2, we're told that he feared the circumcision party. People-pleasing, fear of man, leads him down to a trap. The book of Proverbs says that the fear of man lays a snare. And Peter fell into a snare, and it was people-pleasing, and it led him to act in a way that Paul knew was not good. Because Peter had great influence among many, and others would follow his example of hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was led astray, we're told. So Paul publicly rebuked him to his face, is what the scriptures say, in front of everyone, so that Peter would stand corrected, and those who were led astray would witness the correction as well, and fear continuing in this erroneous teaching. So let's review. In chapter 1, we have Paul saying, I can't believe you left the true gospel. And if anybody follows this gospel, they are accursed. In chapter 2, Paul yells at Peter in front of everyone, correcting Peter and everyone. And in chapter 3, he begins a defense of the doctrine of justification by faith. And for the sake of time today, skip down to Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. We read these words. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Here Paul is likening the law to a guardian and us to children who would be under that guardian. Now the Greek word used there would have called to mind the readers of this letter originally a slave whose job it was to keep watch over and be the guardian over the children of a household. And oftentimes that slave would act in ways uh, that were very strict, uh, that were, they were strict disciplinarians, they were very firm because they had a job to do. Quite frankly the axe was over their head to make sure this kid made it. Um, and they may or may not have loved the child but they had a job to do so they were going to make sure that this little girl or this little boy uh, grew up and grew up right. So this disciplinarian aspect that came along with this guardian would have been what came to the mind of the Galatians as they read this word. Now, think with me. Put yourself in the story. Be that child. Okay? You're under the guardianship of a person who is not blood family, Uh, They have a job to do, they're very strict, they're very firm, and they're just making sure you do right. They're very strict. 
as a child growing up under the care of this person, what do you think you long for? You want to be free. You want to be free. And when a child reaches maturity, the guardian has done its job. Well, there's, and there's no more need for him or her. Well, when we reach faith, this is the parallel Paul is drawing. When we reach faith, when we are saved, when Christ has come, we have no longer a need for that law to point us in that direction because its job in bringing us to Christ is done. So we no longer need to be under the rule of the law. Do you see the, do you see the parallel? The law is our guardian until Christ has come. Just like these children have a guardian until they reach maturity, we have a guardian, which is the law, that brought us to maturity in Christ so that we would believe. Now look at verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. We're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, that's not water baptism, but that's just saying as many of you as have just been immersed in Christ, as you've been thrown yourself into the love of Christ and you've, your lives have been changed, you've given it all, as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So now there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ. Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So now you can see how chapter 4 picks up talking about this heir. It's like, where does that come from? Well, if you look back at the end of chapter 3, we're reminded that we, because of Christ, are heirs. Regardless of whether we're Gentiles or Jews, whether we're black or white, whether we're American or non-American, male or female, it doesn't matter. We can have faith in Christ Jesus and be heirs and be in Abraham's offspring because of faith in Christ Jesus. That's what's being said there. Uh, verse 1 in Galatians 4 says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Uh, Sarah and I have wills, uh, and in those wills, our wishes are clearly stated so that the executive of our will, who is specifically named, would be able to see to it that our matters are handled in the ways we desire, should we have an earlier home going than we were expected, lest someone get their hands on my 10-year-old minivan and 15-year-old Camry, who didn't deserve it. Now, without getting into the details of my will, uh, suffice to say, we've taken certain measures to make sure that our children are cared for and they receive uh, that which we desire for them to have. Now, my children are currently 11, 4, 7, and 1. And in the event of mine and Sarah's untimely death, as it would be said, it would be unwise to give them what they have coming to them, both cars, because they're currently uh, not mature enough or wise enough uh, or even able to make wise decisions with these assets. So uh, if this happened, they'll get it when they're old enough to get it. And until then, we'll have someone take care of them and uh, you know, take care of their inheritance until they're old enough to receive it. Does that make sense? They, do they own it? Yes. But they're going to function for many years as if they don't. Does, does that make sense? They own what they have coming to them. We've outlined that. We've, we've made sure that that's legally bound. We've made sure that they're taken care of. But Justin's not going to see it for several years. 
because he's not old enough to handle it yet. So that's what Paul is saying when he's saying in verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. So the heir of this promise, the person who would receive the inheritance while they're a child, really is no different from just a common slave because even though he owns everything, he has access to nothing. My kids will own that which I outlined for them in my will, but they can't do anything about it until they're of the age that I set in the will. They're heirs, but for the time being, they can't reap the benefits of being heirs because they couldn't handle it. Paul is continuing this analogy when he says in verse 1, as long as an heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, even though he's the owner of everything. Verse 2, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So you see that parallel, how he takes that analogy and draws it all the way out of saying what it really means to be an heir, what it really means to be a son, but also how this happens once the law is removed and Christ has come into play. Look at verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Before Christ, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, man-made religions and philosophies, our own menial ways of making ourselves right with God. Before you came to Christ, no matter what your story is, you were in some way enslaved to an elementary principle of the world. You were in some way mastered by a philosophy that you held in your life of how you would make yourself right with God. Even if you were saved at a very young age and you said, no, I don't really have any of these philosophies. Well, you had a philosophy of I'm, I'm, I'm a good child or I come from a good family or you just didn't care and your philosophy was I don't give a care. You had a philosophy of elementary principles of this world of how you would make yourself right with God. Verse 3 says, in the same way... We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Before Christ, that's who we were. But look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as son. In God's good, good time. He sent his son, God in flesh, born of woman, the arrival of God in flesh, that we who are otherwise under the law, under the guardianship of the law, under that strict disciplinarian, that, with that firm hand, we who are under the law might be redeemed and welcomed into the family of God, the arrival of God in flesh. Look at verse 4 again and let me ask you a question. Why does Paul go out of his way to say that God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law? Look at the text and let's, uh, let's read that verse Without those two phrases, let's see if it changes the meaning of the text any, if it changes the, uh, the, the, the bottom line that Paul is trying to communicate. It would read like this if those phrases were removed. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Doesn't sound terrible. Doesn't sound wrong. In fact, I'll confess if you read those verses to me 
uh, without those two phrases, and I wasn't pouring over them in sermon prep, I don't know that I would pick up that, on the fact that you left those phrases out. Uh, it still fits the context. It still seems to make the same point. It still sounds climactic. I still uh, am leaving, uh, thinking about the Savior. It still points to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Or does it? See, for the remainder of our time, what I want to do is focus on these two phrases and why they matter. See, God doesn't wax eloquently in his word just to hear himself speak. Uh, God doesn't just add things to his word just because he thinks it would be flowery or fluffy or nice. When you have your Bibles, you need to realize this. Every word matters. There's not a single word, a single letter. There's not a drop of ink that got there just for kicks and giggles. Uh, there's nothing that Paul wrote uh, while he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I think I'll just add this because it really makes it sound so nice and I like how it, I like how it rhymes. He's not, a long, he, he's not a long-winded preacher. He is God who communicates intentionally. Every word matters. So this isn't just some extra information in verse 4 that, to make our heads swell. God didn't inspire Paul to say born of a woman, born under the law, just to be nice or because of a certain ring to it. There's a reason. It matters a lot. And it matters to every single person under the sound of my voice. If you're a Christian, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been saved, you've been born from above, this matters a lot to you. If you're not a believer, if you're just seeking, if you're just here with a friend, if you're not really sure about this whole Jesus thing, this matters a lot to you. What we're talking about has an impact on every single human being. And I hope that in the latter portion of our time today, you would see the impact that it has on you. Every word matters. So I hope you'll You'll pay attention during the latter half of our time together now as we look as to why it's important to celebrate Christ's arrival in the flesh. Keep your finger in Galatians chapter 4 and uh, just flip over to John chapter 1. Throughout church history, people have wrestled with the person of Christ, the role of Christ, the nature of Jesus Christ. We call this Christology. Now, perhaps you would expect one to have a hard time with Jesus being God, right? I mean, that would be... Like, if you came up to me and said, I'm God, I'd have a hard time with that too. So you would expect someone having a hard time with the fact that Jesus claims to be God, particularly an outsider, right? Someone who's not of the faith is supposed to believe that this man is very God. You might expect people to have that issue. But did you know that throughout church history, there was just as much controversy over whether or not Jesus was man? Throughout church history, there was just as much of a scuffle, just as much of a debate as whether Jesus was man. Was he really man? We're talking about the nature of Christ, and there's plenty of biblical evidence to look at and draw conclusions on Jesus' divinity and his humanity, and oftentimes throughout the ages, people have focused on one more than the other and come up with some pretty wacky, heretical conclusions, many of which I've listed for you in your bulletin outline so you can talk about them at upcoming Christmas parties and impress your friends. Now, as we look through this, I hope what you'll see here is to each one of these, and hopefully you won't stone me when I say this, each one of these, they're heretical, but you can look at it. I mean, let's just be, you can say, I see where they got that. They're wrong, but I could see why they might have gotten that. They're focusing on this more than that. They're, they're, they're erring on this side more than the other side. So let's quickly go through them. Ebionism. 
Ebionism is a false teaching that Jesus was 100% human, but not divine. He's 100% man, not divine. Ebionites saw Jesus as a normal human being who was given power by God. So just a, nor- a, a normal guy that God gave special power to. But at the end of the day, he was just a normal guy. Uh, docetism. Docetism is the false teaching that Jesus was the exact opposite. 100% God, but not human. Okay, so uh, they teach that Jesus uh, appeared to be human, appeared to be human, but, but really wasn't. It was all kind of a facade. And even though Jesus appeared to be human, he would, you know, sneak into a phone booth and take it off and boom, all of a sudden become God because he wasn't really human. It was just a facade. He was masquerading as such. Um, Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism is a false teaching that Jesus was 100% God and part human. So he had a human body and a human soul, but a divine Spirit And Apollinarians believe that, uh, that Jesus' human spirit was replaced by a divine spirit at one point. But everything else remained human, but he has this special divine spirit. Eutychianism is a false teaching that Jesus was not fully human or fully divine, but like a combination of the two. So he's kind of like a cotton poly mix. And Nestorianism is a false teaching that Jesus had two natures, but that they were entirely separate. So he had two natures. He had a divine nature and a human nature, but never the twain shall meet. They were, he was always functioning in one or the other. Now, many erroneous teachings and heresies come as a result of man bringing his finite understanding to the scriptures and then reading into the text instead of drawing out truth from the text. Does, does, does that make sense? And what you need to realize is this isn't just like I decided to drop a bunch of 50-cent words in the bulletin outline just so I can show off big words. These, these heresies exist today. Today. This isn't like, oh, it's a church history lesson. This isn't just to make our heads swell. This isn't just to treat this, isn't just to treat this like it's a seminary class. These heresies exist today. The nature of Christ is under attack today. The reason we talk about the arrival of God in flesh is not just because it has a nice ring to it around the Christmas season. And, you know, we say God in flesh and just all of a sudden we could, it's like I could smell pine. It, it, it's, not a, it's not a Christmassy thing. This is essential to the gospel. This is essential to the gospel. So when you come across something in the text of Scripture that's hard to believe or understand, uh, you don't just explain it away according to your reasoning and not believe it until it makes rational sense to you. You believe it because it is within the Word of God and we trust God as His Word, and then we do our best to understand it. Does that make sense? As opposed to me saying, that's difficult It seems that in Genesis 1 uh, that God created uh, the world in six days. Uh, But that sounds, I'm pretty sure it would take longer than that. So I'm sure that days means like a lot more than just a day. That's me bringing my understanding to the text and then interpreting. Does does that make sense? Whereas we see day and we believe day. So because God says day. So we see that God created the world on the sixth day. On the seventh day he rested. On the fifth day he created this. On the sixth day he said it was very good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We look at the text and say, what does Scripture say? And through all of our life, we say, what does Scripture say? We have a church that is hopefully based on what does Scripture say so we can grow and change to be more like Jesus Christ. What we're looking at today is important, not just so we can know facts and figures, not just so that we can show off what we know, but so that we can better understand the God that we serve and love and know and celebrate his arrival. 
all of the heresies, they're all heresies that I just read to you, fly in the face of Scripture that teach, there's another 50-cent word, the hypostatic union, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. You say, that doesn't add up. You can't be 100% of two things. Well, Jesus can. He's God. Take it up with him. So that kind of, you know, blows my mind. Yeah, he's God. He has a tendency to do that. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. And look at just some of the scriptures that I've listed in uh, the Gospel of John that we'll touch on, I trust, in the coming weeks. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, 13 verses later. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is referred to as the Word and that the Word was God in verse 1. Then in John 1, 14, we're told that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Later in John chapter 8, verse 58, uh, people are looking at Jesus and they say, are you greater than Abraham? Like, check you out. Are you greater than our father Abraham? And in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. What he's saying is, it's a little bit of a play on words. Not only did I exist, not only am I greater than Abraham, not only am I older than Abraham, but I am who I am. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He's claiming to be God. You know how I know that? The next verse says people pick up stones to throw at him. So they picked up what he was laying down. They picked up the truth that he was saying to them. Saying, you know what? Before Abraham was I am. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Greater. Let me tell you exactly what I am. I am who I am. And they picked up thrones, uh, sto- thrones, not thrones. They picked up stones to throw at him. In verse 59, do you know what it says that Jesus did? It says he ran away and hid. Do you know why? Let me answer that question with a question. What would you do if someone was running after you with a stone? You would run away and hide. Do you know what this shows? Jesus' humanity. Jesus' humanity. Verse 58, Jesus says, I'm God. Verse 59, right then, we see him act like a normal human being. Jesus was fully God, fully man. John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. John 20, verse 28, post-resurrection, Thomas looks at him and says, my Lord and my God, but he's looking at Jesus in the flesh. The writer of Hebrews in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8 says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. See, the weight of Scripture isn't more on Christ's deity than his humanity, and therefore neither should ours be. The weight of Scripture isn't more on Christ's humanity than it is his deity, so neither should ours be. But it's important that we know our Savior. It's important that we realize why it was important that Jesus be Born of woman, born under the law. Let me show you another portion of Scripture that shows why this really matters. It's in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Understanding the fact that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, arrived on earth in the flesh, is actually a litmus test we're told to use to understand whether someone is a false teacher or not. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse 2, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. 
Look at that. In the text, it specifically says, in the flesh. It's not just acknowledging that Christ came. It's not just saying that, you know, God is among us. It's not just saying that his spirit is here. It's not just saying that Christ came and it was kind of like pixie dust and he just floated through the atmosphere and stratosphere and blessed us with his presence. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. It's important to acknowledge that he came physically, bodily, as the God-man. That term God-man refers to Jesus as being the God-man. He's fully God and fully man. And we don't find that the, the origin of that term is not in Scripture, but the origin is actually with origin, and that's a pun. And in, the, in your bulletin outline, uh, you will see a quote that talks about where it is first recorded. Um, the substance of a soul then being intermediate between God and the flesh, it being impossible for the nature of God to intermingle with a body without an instrument, the God-man is born. So it being impossible for Jesus Christ, it being impossible for God to come down from heaven and intermingle with us without an instrument, because we quite frankly couldn't handle the truth, we couldn't handle the glory, we couldn't handle the grace. Jesus Christ, who existed always in eternity, always in eternity past, who was creator God, sovereign Lord, what he did was come down from heaven and put on flesh. And that didn't change who he was before he put on flesh. He's fully God and fully man. He takes on flesh to come and dwell among us and comes in the form of a baby. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. But you know what? You know what the primary purpose of the incarnation of Christ was? It was to be the savior of the world. That's what we're looking at at this Christmas season. I want to call our worship teams to the front as we look at this important, important, important point. The primary purpose of the incarnation of Christ was to be the savior of the world. It was not so that God can show us just how much he could do. It wasn't him showing off his, his, his glory. I mean, he's done that in so many other ways. But the primary purpose of this was so that Christ would be the savior of the world because Christ had to be born under the law and in the flesh in order to fulfill the law on our behalf. And that's what we see in Galatians 4 and verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Like we said before, Jesus existed in heaven from eternity past. He has no beginning and no end. He is the creator of the universe. He is the sustainer of the universe. He is above all, beyond all, better than all, purer than all, holier than all. He is the sovereign ruler over all. But Christ chose to become liable to keep the law that we might obtain exemption from the law. You think about that? Jesus Christ, God the Son, the lawgiver, the one who sets the standard, has chosen to place himself under that standard so that you and I who could never meet that standard might be exempt from it. And when Jesus meets that standard perfectly, 
which he did, he dies on the cross as if he didn't for sinners like you and me. That's the importance of God in flesh, the arrival of God in flesh. Christ is born of a woman, places himself under the law that he created to be a guardian for us, to bring us to himself, and he chooses to submit to it so that he might bear the weight of the law in our stead and then fulfill it, but die as if he didn't. Because Christ had to put on flesh in order to die in our place and shed his blood for our sins. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why did Jesus come in the flesh? He came in the flesh so that he would bleed and die. He came in the flesh so that he would suffer the wrath of God on behalf of sinners like you and like me. And he was born under the law, under the law that he placed himself under so that he would live a perfect life. And his righteous record, his perfect record would replace my sin-stained record. That his spotless record would replace my record full of shortcomings, full of errors, and full of uh, that which makes me unholy before a holy and righteous God. In Hebrews 10, verses 5 and following, says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in me, of me in the scroll of the book. And if you're a Christian today, this has great impact upon your life because you look back upon the God-man, God who arrived in flesh that we celebrate every year at Christmas, and you realize, that was for me. That was for a sinner like me. That made me right with God. God came in flesh. God was born under the law so that I might receive eternal life. And you look back with great joy and you look at Christmas and you say, that's what I celebrate. I celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ as I celebrate and look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, this is good news for you that Jesus Christ came so that sinners like you and like me might be saved. That everything you try to do to impress God amounts to nothing, but that Jesus did everything, everything that would be necessary for salvation for a sinner like you and a sinner like me in his son, Jesus Christ. And that if you trust in him, and believe that he is who he says he is. Believe that he came born of woman, that he was born under the law, that he lived this perfect life and died for sinners like you and me, and that he rose again from the grave so that he would defeat death. Believing in that gospel message, putting all your eggs in that one basket, you might be saved. That's the importance of the arrival of God in flesh. As we prepare to celebrate communion, I want to read to you from Luke chapter 1, Mary's song of praise, popularly known as Mary's Magnificat. 
as she responds to God with the tru- uh, um, because she is aware of the truth of the, the baby that she's holding within her, that God made flesh is within her womb. And you can, you can read along in your Bibles if you want, or you can just silently listen to me as I read the Word of God and pray that it prepares our hearts to celebrate the Lord's table together. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy, holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever.